Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Indigenous Australian culture is the longest continuous living culture, dating back 50 to 60,000 years. That was Michael Brand, who joined the Art Gallery of New South Wales as director in June 2012. Prior to his appointment, he was director of the new Aga Khan Museum in Toronto while it was under construction. From 2005 to 2010, Dr. Brand was director of the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, leading both the Getty Center and Getty Villa sites, and establishing its new center for photography. Previously, he was director of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond from 2000 to 2005, assistant director, curatorial and collection development at the Queensland Art Gallery in Brisbane from 1996 to 2000. Before that, he was curator of Asian art at the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra, and before that, co-director of the Smithsonian Institution Mughal Garden Project in Lahore, Pakistan. He joins us from his office in Sydney. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks very much, Max. Great to be here. So glad to have you. And first, I have to start, of course, with the perennial question of the pandemic and how it's affecting the gallery at the moment. Uh, well, yeah, thanks, thanks for asking, Max. I'd say that uh, in comparison, Sydney and Australia are doing quite well. Certainly in Sydney and our state of New South Wales, we have a population of about seven and a half million people. So far, we've only had about four and a half thousand cases, only 55 deaths. And most importantly, no new cases at all for the last two and a half weeks. But that's been achieved by quite severe lockdowns. So it's been, there's been a big impact on businesses in Sydney. Today, I see my eldest daughter who's been trapped in Melbourne. I haven't seen her for nine months. It's a one-hour flight away. So they had a bit of a second outbreak there. So in general, the situation here is much better than, say, the United States or Europe. We closed down for 10 weeks from late March. And then we reopened on June the 1st. So we've been reopened for over five months. We are a state institution, so our, our state funding has continued on. We've had no job losses, no reduction in state funding. We have had quite severe revenue drops, as you'd imagine, from, you know, from well, the restaurants being closed, the shop. But we are covered by a self-funded state insurance, which has actually covered those losses at least for the first year and possibly the second year. Uh, we've got two major exhibitions have opened in the last couple of months. So generally speaking, that's not much to complain about in the big world picture. But beyond 2021, of course, you know, who knows? Are we going to be back to normal or will the economy be much worse? The hardest thing for us has been planning international exhibitions where it yeah. would depend on whether our lending institution is open. Courier travel has been a big thing where freight is operating between Australia and other countries, but it's a matter of if a courier were to come, they'd be put in quarantine for two weeks, which is uh, <laughs> sort of awkward. Uh, so yeah. that's been probably the biggest challenge in a way. First one will be opening around the very end of June or July next year. So that'll be our big test case. Our big summer show, it's summer down here in Australia. That's been postponed till next summer. That was coming to us from the Pompidou in Paris. So we just put that back by a year and then we're, we'll keep our fingers crossed. It sounds like a great picture from over here where, of course, it's a very different situation where yeah. your sister institution, the Metropolitan Museum, really didn't open until much later. And it's interesting, your origins as a gallery can be traced back to 1871, just a year after the Metropolitan yeah. Museum of Art's founding. I'm curious how you'd compare the goals of an encyclopedic art museum in Australia then and now with a U.S. encyclopedic art museum. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting comparison of dates, and I often think about it. I think, first of all, New York City and Sydney uh, were very different cities in, uh, in 1870s, 1871. When you look at how the, the museums have developed, obviously things like wealth, international status and role, that they, they come into it. The thing with the Archaeology of New South Wales is, which was founded in 1871 as the New South Wales Academy of Art, before it changed its name. Early on, it was really only for the first year or two it had ambitions to be what we would call an encyclopedic art museum, collecting everything from you know, Mediterranean antiquities to, um, to modern art. Even, by, I think, by the mid-1870s, they decided to focus on the art of living artists. We celebrate our 150th anniversary next year. We've really been, in some ways, a museum of contemporary art for a long time. Admittedly, at the very beginning, you would say quite quite conservative contemporary art. So we're a hybrid model. We're not really an encyclopedic museum. We're not a contemporary museum. We're not a modern art museum. And the way I've really seen it now is it follows Sydney's interests. And Sydney is a very unusual city, founded in 1788, first European settlement in Australia, but founded as a penal colony. As its interests changed, the gallery changed. So at the beginning, of course, it's looking back to London. Puts together an extraordinary collection of late 19th century English painting, Victorian painting, sculpture. It discovers you know, French Impressionism a little bit late, perhaps in the 1930s. In the 1950s, we become the first art museum to buy and display Aboriginal art as art, as opposed to, say, ethnographic material. We then get some gifts of old master paintings from Europe. Then we discover historical Asian art, and then we sort of discover much more of the world around us with contemporary international art through projects like the Biennale of Sydney. So it's, it's just very different. Also, we don't have access to imperial or colonial treasures. That's been a very different founding story um, for the gallery. We are a, a European, Western, I guess, an Enlightenment-type institution, but we are set within the Asia-Pacific region rather than looking at that region, say, from outside. So I guess that would be the, right. the main difference. Philanthropy in the U.S. has been more significant for longer, but we actually have had quite strong patterns of philanthropy too. Your past, of course, included responsibility for collections. You mentioned Mediterranean antiquities. You were instrumental in the Getty's return of objects to Italy determined to be looted. And those were relatively recently acquired objects and you participated in reshaping the U.S. museum establishment's reforms to limit its acquisitions of antiquities. But in Sydney, more recently, you restituted an object in the collection obtained from the now disgraced dealer, Subhash Kapoor, and, and you've been very transparent about the need for retrospective provenance research. So I'm curious how you view that need for retrospective research among peer institutions, including your own. Yeah, well, you know, we're an institution that really values scholarship and research. And the way I've looked at it you know, ever since my time at the Getty Museum is if you're researching an object, the life of the object, the full life of the object, is as important in many ways as actually learning about the artistic form or the creative form of the object. You need to know not just who made it, when they made it, and why they made it, but where has it been? How did it get to be on the art market? How did it get to be in your art museum? Another thing that drives our thinking here is, of course, when you look at, say, objects from India or Indonesia, 
they're our next door neighbors and we have a very strong relationship with them. So again, mm -hmm. it just brings that shared history, that that's a genuine shared cultural heritage into a, a sharper focus. Here in Australia, it's not just the Art Gallery of New South Wales where we have a very strong research program into our historical objects. So in, in our case, it's really Asian objects. We haven't collected Mediterranean antiquities. And also we have set up a system of shared research with our sister institutions uh, throughout Australia who are in a similar situation. So that's been really very useful also. But as in the US and in Europe, the unfortunate fact is that for many objects in your collection, there just is no history. You end up in this gray zone. And that was what we focused on at the Getty Museum, was those objects where there actually was enough history, sort of egregious evidence where, to me, it was mm -hmm. just from a pretty matter-of-fact basis. Of course, you'd return it. But most of the objects in the collection don't really have histories. And it really doesn't matter how much research you do, you probably aren't going to find out a lot more. And that, that's one of the areas we all find the most challenging. And you mentioned that because of the history of Australia, you weren't, in fact, the beneficiary, if one can call it that, of imperial treasures, the way yeah. museums in the motherland were. And we're watching today restitutions of material acquired over a century ago with collections that were formerly considered inviolate, now very much in play, as in the restitution of African art by the French government that's planned and the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. What are your thoughts about that type of restitution, which is not about a recent archaeological find? Yeah, that's a very, very complex situation. In a way, my heart says that it's absolutely the right thing to do. But in my head, there are perhaps alarm bells going off saying that it's just way more complicated than that. And it's not just a matter of saying, well, we shouldn't send those works back because that particular country doesn't have an international standard art museum with you know, climate control and you know, superior lighting. I think that's not the issue. It's more that there are these works, say, from 100 years ago, have come into, say, Western art museums in many different ways. So I think if you look at, say, the Benin bronzes, which are probably you know, what we're thinking about from France, or objects uh, from the Beijing Summer Palace, where it's clear they were looted during military campaigns, I think there's perhaps a much stronger argument that those works should go back. But then what happens if works were excavated as part of a, a scientific archaeological program? particularly if it's undertaken with authorities in those areas with that partage system of sharing. What about works that might have been purchased by colonial workers on a, in a market somewhere? So I think it really is a very, a very complex situation. My personal feeling is, and this isn't based on any sort of legal research, is just because we know an object came, well, we know where the object came from, I don't think that necessarily means it has to go Back there. I mean, how many objects do we know about from, say, English country houses where we know that that painting used to sit over the mantelpiece at you know, someone's country estate? It left there for a reason. You know, perhaps there was a war, perhaps the family went bankrupt. Now, objects do change hands. That's a challenge for all of us to know. When did an object change hands under extreme duress? And the same thing goes there for, you know, for Nazi war loot, where where if a Jewish art dealer or collector was you know, forced to sell a work, that clearly doesn't mean that someone has legal title to it, where 
So that I think that's that's the way I would look at it, which basically says it's a very complex situation, and mm-hmm. it's quite right mm-hmm. to think about whether these objects should go back. But I would warn against a sort of a blanket idea that anything that might have come from somewhere else in the 19th century needs to be sent right back there. And we certainly have that sort of understanding with, say, with the Indian government. Um, I have a very close and cordial relationship with the Indian Consulate General here in Sydney, where, as you mentioned, we have returned a small number of objects to India, and we have other objects in our collection we're undertaking more research on. And they fully understand the situation with the complexity and the different types of objects and different types of evidence. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, it's interesting to think about responsibility, socially, morally, that institutions have. And Australia has long embraced its responsibilities to people of color, starting with its first peoples. How has the American Black Lives Matter movement been perceived in Sydney? And what are the lessons that might be learned on this side of the Pacific from how Australia has addressed racial inequities? Well, that's a, it's a very generously phrased question, but I'm afraid to say that there, there, <laughs> there are remaining plenty of inequities in Australia and throughout our history. Um, you know, through our history from a, this from the colonial period from 1788 onwards. The Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. has been received in Australia with, you know, with shock, as it has been uh, in the U.S., and shock at the terrible things that have gone on. I think in Australia, probably the full historical context of the movement is not always fully understood. I mean, people probably barely study the Civil War in, in Australia, the, the whole Jim Crow laws and things like that. So civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, a little bit uh, better known, but the broader context is not so well known. In Australia, it of course makes us think about our own history, mm-hmm. and particular with our indigenous community. In Australia, it is said that Indigenous Australian culture is the longest continuous living culture, dating back 50 to 60,000 years mm-hmm. in Australia. Again, reminding first European settlement only in 1788. That has been a very difficult history for the Indigenous community in Australia with you know, widespread deprivation, theft of land, theft of food sources. So that is an ongoing problem. In comparison to the Black Lives Matter movement, our blight, our moment of shame, our biggest moment of shame is the overrepresentation, the dis- disproportionate number of Aboriginal people making up deaths in custody, whether police custody or in jail. Also, health issues, reduced life expectancy as compared to the rest of the community. So that's sort of the historical situation here. I think where we can be more positive is the fact that Aboriginal art has been both a fantastic source of self-expression, continues to be for the Indigenous community after you know, tens of thousands of years. And this has placed Aboriginal history and culture right in the, in the spotlight, in the foreground for all Australians. I think I mentioned earlier on the Art Gallery of New South Wales was the first art museum to buy and display Aboriginal art as art in the late 1950s. We appointed the first curator of Aboriginal art in 1984, who was also an Aboriginal person. We were the first to have a gallery space for Aboriginal art in in 1994. We have a curatorial department, staffed with three Indigenous curators of Aboriginal art, all tours in Aboriginal gallery are now led by Aboriginal educators. So that's, I think, that's their major steps forward. Again, a different situation from Black Lives Matter, but a situation comparable 
to Native American art, history and culture in the United States. I think where we have done well is there are certain protocols we follow that I think sometimes my international colleagues come here and think, I think they think it's a bit overdone, but for us I think it's really, really important and it's really helped change mindsets here. That is, any event we do at the Art Museum or anywhere else, we always begin with either a welcome to country, and country is what the Aboriginal community refers to as their as their homeland, their particular piece of land, either a welcome to country by an Indigenous person, or if there's no Indigenous elder or person uh, present, I would, for example, give an acknowledgement of country. And I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, who had the land where Sydney is, and I would pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. And I would also recognise the emerging generation of leaders within the Indigenous community, both in Sydney and throughout the country. This is done at events by politicians as well, and I'm very pleased to say by politicians of both sides, both conservative and left-of-centre politicians all do this. And I think it really has changed the mindset in the country that everything we do, we are doing on unceded land that belonged to someone else first. At the gallery, we also have an Indigenous advisory group. We've had that now for the last three years or so, which has been very, very helpful. Some great leaders in our community, chaired by an Indigenous artist, Tony Albert. Tony this year also became a member of our board of trustees. We have 11 trustees, two of whom are artists. Tony becomes the first Indigenous trustee, which I think actually that's an embarrassing delay when we're 149 years, but I've been working over the last years to make that happen. I'm very proud it has. I would say we are not in a position to preach from Australia, given our history, but I think in art museums and in the field of culture, we have taken steps that are very relevant to the US, but more in terms of your Native American history, perhaps than issues of African American history, slavery, urban issues in American cities right now. Sure, but you've also been hard at work to provide space for works of art that in this country we would do well to think about. Your Sydney Modern Project by the Tokyo-headquartered architectural firm Sana is bound to have a major impact nationally and internationally because the expansion and the renovation will put indigenous Australian art in the limelight with a 10,000-square-foot gallery for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander artwork. And that's going to expand your exhibition footprint by twice from 97,000 square feet to 172,000 square feet. It's a huge commitment. How is it progressing in the pandemic? It's a little bit of a miracle, I think. We have not missed the beat. We started construction in early November last year, right before the bushfires hit us, which now seems way in the distant past, but it's mm-hmm. something we all need to be very uh, concerned about, as I know our colleagues in California are. The building industry was deemed an essential industry here. Construction on the Sydney Modern Project has continued with no delays caused by COVID. At the very beginning, we lost one day to bushfire smoke. Uh, And so the project is both on time and within budget, which is fantastic. We've emerged from excavation and demolition to building mode. We should be fully out of the ground in our complex site by Christmas aiming to be open by this time in two years, so in late 2022. So that's also been a great sign of optimism, I think, for all all our staff when we 
when we're in the building, which we're pretty much all, most of us are back in there, or will be in the coming weeks. When we look over the site, it gives us great hope for the future. And also, I think, for the city, when they see this beautiful building going up, we've been quite lucky. The thinking that went into it has proven to be quite perfect for, for these new times. We were not aiming to be the biggest. I mean, it is a significant addition, as you've pointed out, but we're not trying to be the biggest anywhere. We're trying to build a building which is appropriate for our site, which is between the Royal Botanic Garden and the domain, this parkland in the centre of the city that slopes down towards Woolloomooloo Bay as part of Sydney Harbour. So it's an extremely beautiful urban setting. It's about you know a kilometre or so from the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. So I think the scale will be right, but also we've been very diligent about issues of sustainability. Our building has achieved, we aimed for a five-star rating through the Green Star system in Australia. The six-star rating is the highest, but actually we overshot on the five-star rating and have achieved, in terms of a design, a six-star rating. So I think that also puts us in a good position. But as you mentioned, the first gallery you'll encounter in the new building which will be separated from the existing building by a, I think it's about a two-acre art garden, will be yeah. an, a gallery dedicated to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander art. Now, Aboriginal art will also be in all parts of both buildings where it's appropriate with a narrative, say, of 20th century art in Australia or where it's a contemporary gallery, but there will be one dedicated space it's an extraordinary commitment, and it's one that is supported by the New South Wales government to the tune, I think, of a U.S. dollars terms, $175 million in funding, along with private support. And Michael, even just saying those words sounds surreal to a Yank who lives in a nation that abjures major government support of the arts. So with the benefit of hindsight, I'm curious what you think Americans should do to make a more persuasive case for the kind of public support of the arts that's enjoyed in Australia? Yeah, with, with the support of the New South Wales government, which in Australian dollars is $244 million, which so psychologically it's actually pretty much, I mean, a million dollars here has the same impact as a, as a million dollars in US psychologically, so I'm not trying to puff it up, but it, it, is, mm-hmm. it is a very sizable... It's a quarter um, of a billion dollars. <laughs> it's a quarter <laughs> of a billion dollars to an art museum in Sydney. Right. Yeah, I, we're very happy <laughs> I think we have to recognize that there there are quite different conditions in Australia. So, for example, all the major art museums are state art museums, where it's the federal government, as the museums in Canberra, our capital city, or in Sydney, where a state institution. We've evolved into being public-private partnerships. Very importantly, we have bipartisan political support for funding of the arts. So I'm doing this project in Sydney with a conservative government. Admittedly, it's it's a right of centre rather than a, a far right mm-hmm. government, but it's a conservative government which has traditionally been very supportive of the arts. We also pay higher taxes than you do, uh, but with higher taxes, of course, there are benefits. So in terms of what the US could learn, I think we've gone down very different paths, but also the paths were probably coming together a bit, but more more us changing directions. We probably started more on a European basis where almost everything is state funded, but over the past two or three decades, we've moved more towards an American model with a greater proportion of private support. But I think what's interesting is during the pandemic, 
I can just see that slowing down, everyone realizing that one of the reasons our art museums are doing better is because we do have strong state support. And another factor in Australia is that our collections are by definition owned by the state. So our collections belong to our citizens. And so it's much easier to argue that the state has a responsibility as of a duty of care towards those collections and also towards giving people access to those collections. One of my favorite lines for government here, and it's one they recognize, is that the value of our art museum collection actually is one of the single biggest assets owned by the state. And our the value of our collection helps prop up our state's AAA credit rating. That's a, that's a lovely mm. argument to be able to make to treasury officials, <laughs> and, it, and it actually sort of works. Yes. The irony, is, yeah. of course, is that we, when we you know, do a business case for a new building, as we have, We've done very well. We had a 1.6 benefit cost ratio, to use the jargon. So every dollar the government puts in, they get a dollar sixty value. But it's easier to measure that than it is to actually measure what we really do in terms of art, in terms of inspiration, creativity. And I think that's something that we all face: is how do you quantify to government that argument mm-hmm. about what art does, which would lead to more public support? Right. So I would say, in, in answer to your question, I would just point out those differences. Also, I think another thing is we have state support, say, for healthcare. So I think if you have state more state support for healthcare, say, for university fees, it's a more logical extension then to provide public support for an art museum. You'd be a rabid socialist in the eyes of so many in this country. <laughs> it's a terrifying construct, which <laughs> sounds wonderful from this remove. I'm reminded, Michael, when I was director of the Art Gallery of Ontario, Glenn Lowry left there to run the Museum of Modern Art. And when he left, there was a center-left government. And when I came in in June of 95, it was a center-right government. So all of a sudden, we had to pivot in the messages of the gallery from being one that was predominantly about tourism to one that was about education and the welfare of the people of Ontario. But it's very salutary that both parties are in support of, of the arts and in more general terms of culture. When I started work at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond as director, I got a little brochure they put out about you know, the history of the museum and you know, where their funding came from. And it's actually an unusual American museum that is actually a statewide, state-supported art museum. But in the brochure, they very proudly stated that no taxpayer dollars have gone to building the collection <laughs> of art. And my first reaction literally was, that must be a misprint. <laughs> why, why, why would they be proudly stating that they're not supporting the collection? But of course, I discovered there's a very, a very different context. Michael, we're proud of all sorts of odd things on this side of the Pacific. I'll just point that out. <laughs> now, this past year, you curated a show titled Some Mysterious Process, 50 Years of Collecting International Contemporary Art. Can you tell us a bit about that project? Yeah, it was a project that I thought would help us look at our collection and look at the history of the institution as we were planning, well, as we were building, actually, our major new expansion. Ironically, we were meant to start installation of the exhibition the very day we shut the museum down on the 23rd of March earlier this year. The title of the show is actually a quote from the American artist Philip Guston, mm-hmm. one of whose paintings is in, in the exhibition, where someone asked him, how do you paint? What, what is this creative process? Where does it come from? And Gustin answered, it's some mysterious process that I don't even want to understand. 
<laughs> I took that by extension that perhaps for the public, the way a public art museum builds its collection is almost as mysterious a process. So I thought 2020 are like round numbers, 50 years, 1970, 2020. And of course, 1970 is a, just a very important moment in history and art history. The political unrest of the late 60s, uh, man on the moon in 1969. But in Australia, in terms of contemporaries national art, Sydney had been a little bit sleepy, including the archaeology of New South Wales. But in 1967, the Museum of Modern Art in New York sent an exhibition called Two Decades of American Modern Painting out to Australia, came to Sydney, came to Melbourne. And we actually acquired two works from that exhibition, a work by Morris Lewis and Josef Albers also, which are among the first contemporary international works in our collection. In 1969, uh, the local arts patron, John Caldor, brought out Christo and Jean-Claude, and they wrapped Little Bay in Sydney. And that was the moment, I think, where contemporary art really enters the public imagination in Australia. You can't underestimate how important that was. Mm -hmm. 1973, Opera House opens, Biennale of Sydney starts up, and we've been the host ever since 1976 for that. So what I wanted to do was look at how, how the history of the moment and our, as history evolved, how did our collection grow? What's interesting in a place like Sydney and Australia is we always had that choice. Do we look at Europe or do we look at the United States? Our art museum tended to continue looking to Europe, while the National Gallery in Canberra, which was being developed in the 70s and opened in the 1980s, took the bold move of looking towards the US. But our collection started off being focused more on the US and then went into Europe. So some of the questions I've been asking is, well, when did it go? When did it start looking beyond Europe and North America, say to Asia, to the Islamic world for contemporary art? What was missed? What about women artists? So I was also looking at the gender balance. I decided not to try to balance the whole exhibition because that isn't how it was collected. But by the last two rooms, we had a, a gender balance. But finally, I'd say the other story that was interesting to tell was a story of philanthropy in Australia which in general has it's been thought is not as strong as it has been in the United States, and that's basically correct. But in fact, from the very beginning, philanthropy has been a central part of the way, uh, the way we've collected. So it was actually a sort of perfect show to, well, to install during the lockdown. It was wonderful for me to be able to come into the art museum with a small group of colleagues, get our hands on works of art and actually work with them, get them up. And that was the show we had on display when the museum reopened on the 1st of June. And I think also another thought in my mind was I want people to understand that an art museum director does work with art. I don't just lobby government, fundraise and do those sort of things which are a very important part of the role. But an art museum director is also the artistic director of the institution. So it was, it was a lot of fun for me to do that, I have to say. Well, Michael, you've been a wonderful guest. I thank you for making time for today. We're all going to be watching with great excitement at the Sydney Modern Project as it evolves and wish you great success in the days and months ahead. Thank you very much, Max. And of course, we all uh, hope for success from American art museums too as you deal with the pandemic. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Brand, Director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you like what you heard, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find their way to us.